Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 1 to 24, the new covenant for God's land and people, and it's part one. So we'll finish off chapter 36 next week. I'll pray and we'll get into it. Father, thank you that you have given us this opportunity to meet again. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises in your word. Thank you for the assurance that we find through these promises. And thank you for that song we just sang about your attributes and that you are unchangeable. Your promises will always stand. They'll always be true. They will always be trustworthy. So we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we do a memory verse each week. Uh, it's Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. It's one of the main themes in the book of Ezekiel. It's the new covenant, and this is what it's all about. So Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 27. You ready? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So we're going to cover that in more detail next week. Now, in chapter 34, God promised to bring Israel back into the land and change the ecology. It was going to become fruitful and productive after being a wasteland for so many centuries. You know, some of the first Jewish settlers went back to Israel, they died of malaria because it was just a wasteland full of swamps and mosquitoes. But they drained the swamps and they transformed the land. It took a lot of work, but they've done it through God's help. These promises, although they have found their start now in our generation and the previous generation, they will find their full fulfillment when? Only in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, when Jesus comes back after the seven-year tribulation, and then it will be the golden age for the children of Israel. They will all be in their land, and all the promises that God has given them will be completely and totally fulfilled. So we're going to see these promises of a bright future for Israel expanded upon in this chapter. So quickly, just to go through what we're going to look at in chapter 36, is God blesses his people and his land with a new covenant. So it's not just for the church, but it's for Israel. And we have been grafted in. So verses 1 to 5, prophecy concerning the mountains of Israel. 6 through 12, God will bless the land of Israel and his people. 13 through 15, no more shame for Israel. 16 through 19, why God judged Israel. 20 through 23, God is concerned for the honor of his holy name. Verse 24, God promises to gather Israel back into the land. And then it goes on, but we're going to stop there. So I'm going to read the whole chapter because it's one unit. It all fits together and it will give the context. So let's read Ezekiel chapter 36. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. Because the enemy have said of you, Aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations, and you are taken up by the lips of talkers and slandered by the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes, and the cities that have been forsaken, which have become plunder and mockery to the rest of the nations all around. 
Now, just to pause here, what's the context? The Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians have come and defeated the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and taken them up to Babylon, and the land has been destroyed. And the other nations around have thought, well, I'll grab some of that land. The Israelites are gone. Verse 5, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession, with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds, in order to plunder its open country. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel, and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury. Because you have borne the shame of the nations, therefore thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath that surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. For indeed, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled, and so on, and I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, all of it. And the cities shall be inhabited, and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times, and do better for you than at your beginnings. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you, my people Israel. They shall take possession of you, and you shall be their inheritance. No more shall you bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord God, Because they say to you, You devour men and bereave your nation of children. Therefore you shall devour men no more, nor bereave your nation any more, says the Lord God. Nor will I let you hear the taunts of the nations any more, nor bear the reproach of the peoples any more, nor shall you cause your nation to stumble any more, says the Lord God. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify, or set apart, my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, 
and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness. I will call for the grain and multiply it, and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields, so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So just pause there. It says, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, has that happened yet? No, Israel is still as wicked as ever. Hearts are still stone cold towards God. So this is a hint that this will not happen until Jesus comes back. Because that's when, as you read in Romans, that, that heart change will happen. Verse 35, continuing. So they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. Interesting, we have to ask, right? I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days. So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. It's a pretty full chapter. That's why I'm breaking it into two parts, and we'll just cover the first part now. So let's look at verses 1 through 6. Prophecy concerning the mountains of Israel. It says, And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel, and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Because the enemy has said of you, Aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations, and you are taken up by the lips of talkers and slandered by the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes, and the cities that have been forsaken, which became plunder and mockery to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations, and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession, 
with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. So, remember last week in chapter 35, it was all about God judging Edom, and they looked with jealousy upon the rich farmland, the flat land that could be used for agriculture in the land of Judah, and they were jealous about that, and they took it for themselves. So God is now talking in verse 1 to the mountains of Israel, like he was talking to Mount Seir in chapter 35. He now prophesies to the mountains of Israel. So many of the prophecies in this chapter concern how God is going to physically bless Israel by blessing the land and making it safe and fruitful. Now verse 2 it says, The ancient heights have become our possession. So Israel's enemies, and like last week we learned about the Edomites, thought that because Israel had been taken away from the land by the Babylonians, that, well, if they're not there, we can take it. But as we learned last week, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. It's God's land. It's not to be taken by anyone else. Verse 3, Swallowed you up, a quote from Feinberg, the Enemy intended to swallow the people of God, the verb meaning literally to pant or snuff up a figure from the panting of wild beasts, as a wild beast ravenously smells after prey to devour it. So picture in your head a lion chasing a deer or something like that, the lion going and bearing down on that deer to kill it. And then verse 3 says, slandered. Now, the ten spies is an example they gave a bad report of the land to the people and caused the people not to go in. Joseph's brothers gave a bad report about him. And many people today still give a bad report about the Jews and also about the land. And it's just another way the world denigrates or unfairly criticizes God. Now it says in verse 4, Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, hills, rivers, valleys, desolate wastes, and the cities. Ezekiel chapter 35 revealed God as Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. And God is speaking to the land that is His, where His presence will always be. It's the land of Israel. So don't forget that. When people are talking about breaking up the land of Israel and and dividing up, no, it's not right. It all belongs to them. God said so. And wise is a nation that recognizes that. Verse 5, I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who gave to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. (laughs) So, God is giving a really strong warning that if you touch my country, I'm going to deal with you. So, a picture here is, imagine how a husband would feel if another man made advances on his wife. He would be very jealous. He'd say, hey, get out of here. She's mine. You know, I'm married to her. You go away. And so God is rightly protective of what is his. He's claimed it for himself. It's his land. And so when people try to steal the land of Israel or take it from the people of Israel, God really doesn't like that. It's his land and you don't touch it. It's very simple. If you try and take God's land, you will find yourself fighting against God. Now let's move on to verses 6 through 12. God will bless the land of Israel and his people. Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys, 
Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury, because you have borne the shame of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath, that surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. For indeed, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, all of it. And the cities shall be inhabited, and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times, and do better for you than at the beginnings. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you, my people Israel. They shall take possession of you, and you will be their inheritance. No more shall you bereave them of children. So in verse 6 it says, Say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys. So God continues to direct his word to the land of Israel. Now why is this exciting? Because it's a promise that God is going to take his people back to the land of Israel, that the land of Israel is the eternal, permanent home for the people of Israel. It shows that God has not given up on his people. He will take them back to their land. Now, why is this important? Well, a lot of churches teach this heresy called replacement theology. And it's growing, and the number of churches believing this is increasing. It's been in the church since the second century. It's the false teaching that the church has replaced Israel, or you could say it as the church is spiritual Israel. But I want to point out to you that God's covenant promises towards the physical nation of Israel are still true. They still stand. As we learned about God's attributes, he is unchanging. He doesn't change his mind. So God promises to be faithful to Israel, even if they are not faithful to him. Now, isn't that good? Because what does it say in the New Testament about us? If we are unfaithful, God still remains faithful because he'll not be unfaithful to himself, right? So, in addition to Psalm 89, 30 through 37, and Jeremiah 33, 19 through 36, the following scriptures make it very clear that God will never abandon Israel. So Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37. I'd love to read the others, but there's not time. You can read them yourself. It is the Lord who provides the sun to light the day and the moon and stars to light the night and who stirs the sea into roaring waves. His name is the Lord of heaven's armies. And this is what he says. And listen to this. I am as likely to reject my people Israel as I am to abolish the laws of nature. Now, do you think God's going to abolish the laws of nature anytime soon? I don't think so. In fact, the Bible says he won't. He says they will remain in the book of Genesis. And verse 37 in Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Just as the heavens cannot be measured and the foundations of the earth cannot be explored, so I will not consider casting them, that is the children of Israel, away for the evil they have done. I, the Lord, have spoken. People say, oh, but they rejected the Messiah. Yes, they did. What does it say here? I will not consider casting them away for the evil they have done. 
So, replacement theology is a dangerous false doctrine. Twisting the scriptures to make the church become Israel does a lot of damage, especially to the Jews. Now, verse 6, it says, You have borne the shame of the nations. So, even though Israel was fully deserving of all God's discipline that came their way, God still cared about them. It's like when a parent disciplines their child, it's not like they like doing it. You know, and God here is showing compassion for his people. And what's happening with Israel today? What does the UN do, you know, when they do their, their votes against countries? Well, Israel is always, with very few exceptions, the target of these resolutions. They're always against Israel. The world is still looking with scorn on Israel. And verse 7, the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. And so God is now promising to judge the nations around Israel. Now, we're going to come back to the New Testament, and it says there in 1 Peter 4, 17 to 18, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Now, do you think these nations around Israel are better than Israel? Or just as bad? Well, I think they're just as bad. Are they going to escape judgment? Of course not. Verse 8, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit. God promises to make the land of Israel green and productive. Now, a quote from David Guzik, just to show how this is true in our generation. According to Israeli government statistics and reports, though only 20% of Israel's land is suitable for farming, since the establishment of the modern state of Israel in 1948, they have more than tripled the amount of land used for farming and production has increased 16 times. What used to be an agricultural wasteland is now modeled for the world and Israel produces 95% of its own food requirements and has a large agricultural export industry. We can regard these impressive developments as a mere beginning of the much greater fruitfulness promised in the fullness of God's plan for Israel and her land. So it goes to show that these promises are already coming true. They'll find their full fulfillment in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, my people Israel, for they are about to come. Think about when this was written. You're an Israelite, right? Put yourself in their shoes. You're in exile. You just left your land. You've been taken captive by the Babylonians. And here you read this verse or this section of scripture, this prophecy from the prophet Ezekiel. My people Israel, for they are about to come. So you would feel like you're rejected by God, like kicked out of your land. You had been kicked out of your land, but God still calls them my people Israel and this promise that they are about to come. You know, talking to the land of Israel, which means they're going to come back to the land of Israel. So this is a welcome reassurance that God has not forgotten or disowned them and that they would one day be going home to Israel. Remember, that first exile was only for 70 years. 
Now, what about when God disciplines us? We feel like God has forgotten us, but what does God say to us? He says, my children, yeah? My child. God has not disowned us. And you can look at Psalm 103 that we sung about earlier. He considers that we are just dust. He's very compassionate and merciful. Verse 9. Indeed, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. Again, God is showing that he's interested not just in the people of Israel, but also the land of Israel. And he's going to continue to pour out assurances that would bring much comfort to the people of Israel. He is for them, and I will turn to you. And a quote from Maya, applying this to us, when we feel like we're in a figurative wasteland, right? There is a wonderful spiritual application from this literal promise. God can restore that which is dead and unfruitful. Do you think that you will never be glad again, that shadow will always lie across your path, and that desolation shall hold undisputed empire or hold over you? It shall not be so. O desolate mountains, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield fruit, and it is near to come. So, You might be going through a time in your life when you feel dry and barren, but just take the spiritual application from this promise. God can take what is dead and unfruitful, a dead and unfruitful life, and he can make it fruitful again. So let that be your prayer, if that's where you're at this morning. In verse 10, I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, all of it, and the cities shall be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. Again, it's already partly fulfilled today, both by birth and immigration. And in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, all the Israelites will live in the land. It'll be a complete gathering. No one will miss out. Verse 11, And do better for you than at the beginning. Now, what was the land of Canaan, now called the land of Israel, like when God first took them in? Do you remember what the Bible said about that? God described it as a land flowing with milk and honey. So a synonym or a figure of speech for being beautiful, productive, and fruitful. And you can read Deuteronomy 8, 11, 8 through 32 for a, a full picture of just how wonderful it was. But I've just got Exodus 20, verse 6 here. On that day I raised my hand in an oath to them, a promise, binding promise to the children of Israel, to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them flowing of milk and honey, the glory of all lands. So this was the best, most bountiful, most fruitful land in the whole world. And God searched it out for them and gave it to them, the children of Israel. Now, how bountiful was it? How fruitful was it? Well, one cluster of grapes took two men to hold it. They tied it onto a pole, the Bible says, in Numbers 13.23, and put that pole over their shoulders to carry this one cluster of grapes back to camp. It would have been huge. So if the land was so incredibly productive back then, then how good will it be when Jesus finally comes back? So this is going to be a massive blessing for the children of Israel. And verse 12, No more shall you breathe them of children. So before God brought the children of Israel into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, God warned them of the consequences, both good and bad, of obeying or disobeying him. If they obeyed, then they would be abundantly blessed beyond all measure. 
bumper crops, no miscarriages, no diseases, plentiful rain in its seasons, wild beasts would not be attacking the people, all those things. However, if they disobeyed, then life would be very difficult. Things would go terribly wrong. Drought, disease, crop failures, wild beasts, lions and bears, multiplying and killing people. And indeed, it would seem like the land was killing or bereaving the nation of their children. People were dying because of the effect of the land, the curse on the land, because of their disobedience. So God is promising to reverse the curse that had resulted from their disobedience and bless them instead. That's important. But it's not because of anything good that they had done. Rather, it was simply because he loved them and wanted to bless them. And one thing about the new covenant, it's a covenant of grace and unmerited favor. So you never find anything in these promises where, because you've done so well, I'm going to bless you. No. It's despite your sin, it's despite your wickedness, it's despite this, I'm going to bless you. In verses 13 through 15, no more shame for Israel. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour men and bereave your nation of children, therefore you shall devour men no more, nor bereave your nation any more, says the Lord God. Nor will I let you hear the taunts of the nations any more, nor bear the reproach of the peoples any more, nor shall you cause your nation to stumble any more, says the Lord God. So you devour men and bereave your nations. This is what they formerly said of the land of Israel. This is David Guzik said this. It was a desolate and seemingly forsaken land. In many ways it's described the land of Israel from the Roman conquests of the 1st and 2nd centuries until the Zionist movement starting in the 19th century. Scarcity, disease and barrenness marked that land. And it was true. And verse 13, you devour men, this is Feinberg. In a sense, the land of promise was a bereaver of the nation, for it was subject, through the chastisements of God, to droughts, blasting and mildew, locusts, and famine. And the scriptures are in there, you can look them up yourself. Now Spurgeon said in an 1864 sermon, These words were addressed to the mountains of Palestine, albeit that they are now waste and barren. Think about this, 1864. Spurgeon was writing this, albeit that they are now waste and barren. And what did he say? They are yet to be as fruitful and luxuriant as in the days of Israel's grandeur. So Spurgeon had the faith to believe that God would transform the land of Israel while it was still a wasteland in 1864. Today, guess what? There's many people who see Israel green these promises come to pass and they still don't believe that God has not given up on his people Israel. God's promises to Israel, physical Israel, are both eternal and true. In verse 14, you shall devour men no more, nor bereave your nation any more. So again, this is a reference to God's promise to ecologically transform the land of Israel from a wasteland to a productive land. No more famines, no more diseases and failed crops, all those things. Verse 15. No one will let you hear the taunts of the nations anymore. So for almost the last 2,000 years, people have been taunting Israel. They've been kicked out of the land, they've been made fun of, beaten up, killed, you know, moved on. But now people's mouths are being shut as they see how God is blessing Israel with the return of their people, the agricultural blessing and also the military and financial success of the nation. 
And this is all in direct contrast to the nations surrounding them. All the nations around Israel are going downhill. You know, many are collapsing financially. Yet Israel, in the middle of all these nations which are struggling, is blooming. It can only be God. The only reason for that can be God and God fulfilling his promises. And also think about why. Has Israel done anything to deserve what God is doing for them? They still hate him. They still reject the Messiah. Half of them are legalistic and half of them are just worldly. And yet God is still doing this. Why? For his name's sake, for his glory. Now, why God judged Israel in verses 16 through 19? It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in a customary impurity. Therefore I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for the idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. So verse 17, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. Now think about this. Sin always messes things up. Whether it's your family, whether it's your church, whether it's your town, city, country, whatever it might be. God made the world perfect, and Adam's choice to rebel against God resulted in the curse, which included weeds and thorns. Now the same is true regarding Israel. Their sinful ways and deeds resulted in the physical curses coming upon the land of Israel. They defiled their own land and willingly forfeited all the blessings that God wanted to give them. Why? Well, it's all for the sake of temporary pleasure, and they just didn't want to submit to God. Pride. Now I have an application. Failing to enter into God's rest. So as believers, we too can curse our lives in the sense that when we harden our hearts and sin, we both miss out on the conditional spiritual blessings that result from a soft and obedient heart. So we miss out on experiencing God's love and joy and peace in our hearts. We don't miss out on the unconditional blessings like sanctification and salvation, but we do miss out on the conditional ones. And instead, we experience the painful consequences of our rebellion against God as we grieve the Holy Spirit. And you can see Ephesians 4.30. And God tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.6, these things happened as a warning to us. The things we're reading about in the book of Ezekiel, all the things that happened to the nation of Israel, were written for warning to us. Now, Hebrews 4.9-11 So there is a special or Sabbath rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fall. Now we're not talking about losing salvation here. We're talking about missing out on enjoying entering into God's rest. We rest from our labors and stop trying to do things on our own strength. So for the New Testament believer, the Sabbath or seventh day rest finds a fulfillment in the new covenant 
we cease from our works, that is our own self-effort, law-keeping, trying to be good enough on our own strength, when we enter into God's rest. And one of my favorite verses relates to this. It says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting, putting my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it means to enter into God's rest. It's no longer I who's doing it, but it's Christ living in me who's doing it, who's working out his will in me. It's not on my own strength. Now, another application here in verse 17. So this application is what our sin looks like to God. This is important for us to understand. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Now, the woman's menstrual cycle is not sinful or bad, and it's an essential part of the life cycle. Okay, But in Jewish culture, and most likely for hygiene reasons, the woman was considered ceremonially unclean during this time. So any person who was considered unclean for any reason, the same rules applied, they were not allowed to touch anyone or touch anything, because if they did, what they touched or who they touched would also become unclean. And so this picture of being unclean is a good picture because it shows just how vile and disgusting sin is to God. It corrupts or defiles everything it touches. And, you know, if someone's vomited in your car, I hope this has never happened to you, but it's happened to us, kids and that, what happens when you get into that car that smells of vomit? It makes you want to throw up too, right? So that's what sin is like to God. It makes him want to throw up. It smells that bad, so to speak. So Isaiah uses a powerful analogy similar to this one here in Ezekiel about the woman, that of a bloodied garment, to describe just how vile or gross our sinful nature is to God. It describes, and this is important, how God sees all people before they come to Christ and receive his righteousness. So. I'll say that again. It describes how God sees all people before they come to Christ and receive his righteousness. Okay, So it says in Isaiah 64, verses 6 and 7, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, that is, our best efforts at being good, they are nothing but filthy, literally menstrual, rags or clothing. So they are literally nothing but filthy rags menstrual garments. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Yet no one calls on your name and pleads with you for mercy. Therefore, you have turned away from us and turned us over to our sins. So I just want to point out that when God describes man as sinful, there is no stronger word to describe how wicked or evil we are and how repulsive our sin has made us to God. You know, we hear words like pedophile or rapist or incest. Yuck, that's gross. But for God, he's even more repulsed or disgusted even just by one lie. We think, oh, it's only a lie. No, God is revolted by that. It's against his nature. It's foreign to his nature. So, Even good people by human standards are completely repulsive to God. So we'll come back to our verse just for a bit. To me, 
Their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. The point here, God is talking about the people of Israel, but we're now applying this to us and every person who's born with a sinful nature, which is everyone except Jesus, right? So this is important. Why? Because it gives us a better appreciation of the truth about the depth of God's love for us. For example, Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that word sinners there, right? Basically, God's love had to overcome his hatred of sin. If God's hatred of sin is both passionate and infinite, which it is, then so is his love for us. It's immeasurable. It's one of the attributes of God. And you can read in your own time, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, about the limitless nature of God's love. However, it gets better. It's not just that it's balanced on this balance and it's equal. No. God makes it very clear in his word that he loves us more than he hates our sin. So how great is his love for us? If he loves us more than he hates our sin, and he hates our sin infinitely. Romans 5.20 God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant, and in the Greek, superabounded. Superabounded. God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Superabounded. So God loves us, yes, but not because we're good. It's because of his nature. To him, our sin is vile and repulsive. So his love, he loves us more than he hates our sin. And that's why he gives us the opportunity to be saved. Therefore I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols, verse 18. When the prophet spoke of blood poured out, he was probably referring to murders, judicial violence, and even child sacrifice in the worship of idols. And that was uh, Feinberg there. Verse 19, So I scattered them among the nations, and David Guzik says, God long before, at the beginning of Israel's history as a nation, promised that he would punish them with exile if they were to persist in their disobedience and rejection of him. This eventually happened, and God judged them according to their ways and their deeds. So again, this was nothing new. This is what God had said would happen a long time ago. Now, Ezekiel 36, verses 20 to 23. God is concerned for the honor of his holy name. So when they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name when they said of them, These are the people of the Lord. So they recognized the people of Israel as the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Can you see how that brought shame to God when the people of Israel had to be kicked out because of disobedience? Verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I did not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. So verse 20, When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name, 
when they said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. So because of their sin and rebellion, they brought shame upon God's name. They caused God to have to discipline them and kick them out of the land. Now, back in Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 22 and 23, even after the people were exiled, the majority did not repent. They continued on in their wickedness in the places where they were taken captive. Now, wouldn't you think that God would continue to discipline them if they continued their wickedness? He doesn't. Look at verse 21 and 22. But I had concern for my holy name. I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. So we come to the second reason that God acts for his people. We've covered the first one already. He loves us. But the second one is his honor and glory. Yes, it's true that God loves the church and he loves Israel. But there's another reason God acts for his people when they don't deserve it. It's his honor and glory. So what does it mean? What are we talking about here? Well, consider that God made several comprehensive promises to Abraham and the children of Israel. Now, if God fails to keep those promises, then in the eyes of the world, what do they think of him? He's weak, impotent, unfaithful. What kind of God is he? So if God has made a promise, then he must keep it. And this is why we can be so confident that God is a faithful God who will never let us down and will always keep his promises to us. And we can see the promise, I will never fail you, I never abandon you. And we see that in Deuteronomy 31, 6 and 8 and also Hebrews 13, 5. And we're going to look at more of God's covenant promises at the end. So God does things for his holy name's sake. He does it to maintain his honor and his glory. He must keep his promises. And Taylor says, He wants his name to be great, so that the nations may regard him not as an ineffective tribal God, but as the Lord of the whole earth. And Israel is to be the channel through which this vindication is going to be achieved. Verse 23, And the nations shall know that I am the Lord when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. So when is God going to be hallowed or set apart or made holy in the eyes of the world? When God fulfills his promises made toward Israel, regardless of whether or not they deserve them, whether or not they're obedient. And Vorder and Hop say, When the nations see Israel return to its land, they will draw only one conclusion. Israel's national deity has acted to save the people. By restoring Israel to its land, God could uphold God's own dignity before the rest of the world. So, we need to remember that if God has given up on the people of Israel, like the replacement theology doctrine teaches, then God is not going to be upholding his dignity, his glory, the honor of his name. He made a promise and he didn't keep it. So that's why it's really important that we understand that God has not given up on the physical nation of Israel. They are still his people. And there's plenty of evidence right before our eyes. It doesn't take much faith anymore to see that God is blessing Israel. They are still his people. Now, verse 24. God's promise to gather Israel back into the land. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, 
and bring you into your own land. Remember the context? They are out of the land in Babylon. Now, verse 24 says, I will take you from among the nations. Why did God say nations instead of nation? Singular. Well, this promise is going to be fulfilled twice. This is going to happen twice. And you can read in Isaiah 11, verses 11 and 12, I just read a portion of those two verses. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to bring back the remnant of his people from the ends of the earth. So in that day, we're talking future, from when it was written. So the first regathering was the return of the captives from Babylon, following the Babylonian invasion. Then in 70 AD, the Romans defeated the Jews and scattered them to the four corners of the earth. And now, in our generation, what are we seeing? The regathering of the people of Israel. It's well underway. It won't be complete until Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation to start his thousand-year rule and reign on the earth. And I've got some other scriptures there for you to read to show that this regathering of the people of Israel is a really, really important doctrine in the Bible. It's something that God hangs his honor and glory on. He will do it. And those scriptures are Deuteronomy 31 to 6, Jeremiah 23 verse 3, Jeremiah 32 verse 37, and Ezekiel 11, 16 through 17. So you can look those up in your own time. And Wiersbe has a quote. He says something about verse 24, into your own land. God didn't give them the land because of their righteousness. Deuteronomy 9, 6 expands on that. And he won't restore the land because of anything good they have done. God, in his grace, gives us what we don't deserve. So again, the new covenant is all about God's grace, giving us what we don't deserve. And Deuteronomy 9, 6 says, You must recognize that the Lord your God, so I'll say that again, you must recognize that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land because you are good. For you are not. You are a stubborn people. <laughs> Can't get more clear than that, can it? All right? It's grace. The Lord your God is not giving you this good land because you are good. For you are not. You are a stubborn people. And again, we can apply that to us too. We're not saved because we're good. We're a stubborn, wicked people, repulsive to God, but God in his love still made a way for us to be saved. Now, it's going to finish with talking about the covenants of God. Now, I've adapted this from David Guzik's commentary, and it just shows how all the different covenants, the three main covenants in the Old Testament, find their conclusion or their ultimate fulfillment in the new covenant. So, this is important. Why? Because it outlines God's plan of salvation. So let's go through the four main covenants or agreements that God has made. So the first one is the Abrahamic covenant, and you can see the verses there in your notes. So this is an unconditional covenant that God made to Abraham and his covenant descendants, and it includes the land of Israel, the nation of Israel, and the promise of the Messiah or Deliverer to extend to all nations. So I'm going to read a couple of verses to highlight some of these promises. Genesis 12, 2-3 I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
And then Galatians 3.16, expanding on this promise through the seed of Abraham, one of his descendants. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises, covenants, agreements were decreed and made to Abraham and his seed, his offspring, his heir. Here God does not say, and to seeds, descendants, heirs, as if referring to many persons, but, and to your seed, your descendant, your heir, obviously referring to one individual, who is none other than Christ, the Messiah. So, right from this first Abrahamic covenant, we already have a promise of the Messiah, as very clearly explained in Galatians. The second main covenant was the Mosaic or Sinai covenant, and you can read that in Exodus 19. And this Mosaic covenant gave Israel the law, the sacrifices, and the choice of blessing or curse. Then we move on to the third one, which is the Davidic covenant. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 7. And this promised an everlasting dynasty, like a line of kings, a perfect ruler, and the promised Messiah. So. Obviously, Jesus is the ultimate king who would come from this line. And he will when he reigns on the earth for a thousand years. And the fourth is the new covenant. There's a whole lot of verses listed there. I encourage you, when you've got some time, to go through and read that. This new covenant thing in the Old Testament is a massive thing. God talks about it all the time. And so... It's worth reading that and just seeing how important this is to God. He repeats himself so many times. So basically, to sum this up, God's plan of redemption through the covenants is completed and perfected in the new covenant. Over the span of Old Testament passages that announce the new covenant, we see the promises of gathered Israel, cleansing and spiritual transformation, new and real relationship with God, and the reign of the Messiah. This is all part of the new covenant. We as a church are very fortunate to be grafted in and we can partake of some of the blessings that God has given through the new covenant. But primarily, it's actually for Israel. So I finish with a quote from Alexander. Therefore, the new covenant replaced the Mosaic covenant by adding those things that made it better, but not by eliminating the good, righteous and godly mosaic stipulations that described how to live a godly life. All it has done really is just made it possible to live a godly life, because before we could not, not without Christ living in our heart. What's Galatians 2.20 say again? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we now live in the age of the new covenant. Christ established the new covenant when he shed his blood. And we thank you for the grace that you have shown. This was completely undeserved. Jesus did not have to give up his life for us. So thank you, Father, for sending your Son. I thank you, Jesus, for choosing to die on the cross for us as a willing voluntary sacrifice and making the new covenant possible, ratifying the new covenant by your blood. And we know that it's true because of what you did on the cross. We thank you for everything you've done for us. Help us to 
Remember that your promises are always true. It's for your name's sake that you do this. Not because we are good, but for your own glory. And so we just thank you for your love for us, but also thank you that you do things because you are concerned for your holy name. And you must keep your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.